You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Um, well, we're beginning a, a new series, or we did last week. I wasn't here with you, but Craig, I know, preached uh, from a passage from Matthew with Christ's birth. And this week we have the visit of the Magi. And Matthew, again, will be in Matthew's gospel for a season through the Sunday uh, after Easter. Um, so through Lent, through the Holy Week, and through the week after Easter, we'll be in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, and we had uh, narrative passages last week and this week, but we'll be focusing mostly in the weeks to come on what are called the discourse passages of Matthew. Matthew's Gospel is too immense to tackle in a season this short. I mean, it would take probably more than a year to really do its service. Uh, but there's a theme that runs throughout Matthew's Gospel, where there are these five what are called discourse sections, where Jesus is really speaking uh, and teaching at, at length. Uh, so next week we'll start with some excerpts from the Sermon on the Mount. Then we'll have the ascending of the apostles, uh, sermon parables on the uh, kingdom of heaven, uh, discourse on the church, and then finally the Olivet Discourse on the end times. And we'll come back to some narrative passages once we get uh, to Holy Week with the uh, Passion and the Resurrection, and finally end with the uh, Great Commission the week after Easter. Um, so that's all to come, and you might consider uh, studying the Gospel, or at least those uh, discourse passages in the, the coming months as we go through it on your own, or maybe with a small group. And I think uh, one of the things we'll see uh, in Matthew is his emphasis on kingdom. As he says, kingdom of heaven and Christ as the king. Of course, there are other things that we can talk about, but that just comes up repeatedly. Indeed, in today's passage, uh, we have the visit of the wise men uh, or the, the magi. And a major tension in the passage is with King Herod. Uh, and it is uh, with the kingship of Christ the, the child, the king of the Jews, as the Magi call him. So we have one king on the one hand, King Herod, and the king of the Jews, the, who the Magi are looking for. Uh, and just to recap the story again for you uh, that we just read, just to have a clear understanding of what exactly is going on here. This is about two years or maybe less after Jesus is born. Still, his family is in Bethlehem. Uh, and some wise men, we, we don't know how many there are exactly. Did you notice that? I mean, there are three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but it never says three wise men. Uh, trivia, right? But there are plural. There may have been two. Maybe there were three. Who knows? Uh, but wise men uh, who are some sort of astrologers from the east, possibly Persia or Babylon or thereabouts, come to Jerusalem looking for the king of the Jews. And this indicates that they're familiar with the, this prophecy from Balaam, who was a Gentile prophet, uh, when he says in Numbers chapter 24, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. And a scepter being uh, the staff that a ruling monarch holds, a king. 
So Herod the Great is the acting quote-unquote king, uh, actually not the king in the Davidic line. So he's a sort of uh, puppet or client king of, of the Roman Empire uh, in Judea. He, he hears about this. He hears that these magi have come into town and are looking for the king of the Jews. And this news troubles him. And we hear that not only does it trouble him, it troubles all of Jerusalem with him. And maybe this is a, an exaggeration. I mean, it's probably a sort of exaggeration. But we see, at least from the story, that he was not alone in uh, his trouble. He summons the chief priests and the scribes, the Jewish uh, religious leaders, to come to interpret uh, to him from the scriptures where the Christ is to be born. And based on Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that we had Micah chapter 5 today as our Old Testament reading. Based on that passage from their scriptures, they discern that the Christ is to be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, about six miles away from Jerusalem, a, a small-ish uh, suburb of Jerusalem, a really small suburb, actually, of Jerusalem. Uh, and, the, and the incredible thing here is this, that the religious leaders seem indifferent at best. I mean, Herod seems antagonistic at worst, but the religious leaders seem kind of, you know, like, hashtag whatever. Uh, they, they don't go to Bethlehem with the Magi. I mean, here's the prophesied uh, Christ who, who may or may not be born. Would, wouldn't you want that to be, wouldn't you want to go check that out? I mean, if somebody said, hey, Christ has come back, he's six miles up the road in, in uh, Homewood, you know, wouldn't you want to go check that out? Uh, they don't. They, they stay in, in Bethlehem. So they're, you know, all of Jerusalem troubled with him. Uh, and Herod, therefore, he summons the wise men uh, to his court, and he deceives them to do his bidding. Uh, and they go to Bethlehem instead, instead of him, instead of the Magi, instead of anyone else. They alone go to find the child, and they find him, and they worship him, they rejoice, and they fall down and worship and offer gifts, expensive gifts. And then an angel of the Lord tells them of Herod's deception, so they go home by another route. As I said, the uh, main conflict in the pa passage is with Herod. He's troubled or threatened uh, by the news of the possible true king because he's a fake king on the throne in Jerusalem. But he's also a, he's a, he is a powerful ruler. He engaged in numerous building projects, including uh, one of which was to restore the temple in Jerusalem, the temple itself. So uh, at least he has an interest in religious architecture. Uh, but here, the Messiah might be around... And rather than go to worship him, he is deceiving, he's fearful, secretive, and later we'd see that he's murderous about this news. Uh, and he's not the only problematic figure. As I said, the chief priests knew enough to know Micah 5 2 is prophetic, enough to give the Magi the true location to find the newborn king, yet they don't make this six mile journey themselves. Uh, it is the Gentile pagans from a different country who instead are led by the Spirit, by a star, and travel a great distance to Jerusalem first and then Bethlehem to come to a foreign country and bring expensive gifts and then fall on their faces and worship the true King of the Jews. 
And thus we see here that the, uh, the antagonistic response of the, the king is, uh, is contrasted with the appropriate response, uh, the spirit-led response of the, uh, the magi. And it's the antagonistic response uh, that uh, comes from Judaism, actually. That is God's chosen people at the time. The antagonistic response to the Christ child comes from Judaism, God's chosen people, while the appropriate response comes from Gentiles, the outsiders, not the ones uh, that were expected to recognize the king, not the ones we might expect. Matthew's gospel has the most distinctly uh, Jewish tone of all the gospels. He himself was a Jewish convert but he no longer identifies at the time that he's writing this as Jewish. He's a follower of Jesus Christ. He was part of a minority group of Christians who were being persecuted at the time by the Jewish population in Antioch while he's writing this gospel. He's concerned to show them that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of their scriptures. But here's uh, here's the kicker, though, that's most applicable to us here and now. Matthew's also concerned that God's new people could fall into the same trap. That God's new people could fall into the same trap that Judaism fell into here. In other words, the Christian church could one day respond like Herod, the chief priests, the scribes, and all of Jerusalem. I'm going to read to you uh, uh, the first paragraph of this book called Christless Christianity by Michael Horton. Some of you know who he is, theologian. He's not promoting Christless Christianity. He's describing the American church as Christless for the most part. And he says this, What would things look like if Satan really took control of a city? Over a half century ago, Presbyterian minister Donald Gray Barnhouse offered his own scenario in his weekly sermon that was also broadcast nationwide on CBS radio. Barnhouse speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia, all of the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing, the children would say yes sir and no ma'am, and the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. You see, when blood is running in the streets, you know, we know that something is wrong when things look bad. It's when everything seems to be going well that we should be afraid. But so many uh, contemporary thinkers like Horton have pointed out that Christianity has become sort of Christless. In other words, we don't recognize our true king. We do not recognize our true king, Jesus Christ. Actually, if he showed up, uh, we might not like it at all, just like all of Jerusalem. We don't really want a king. Unless a star or the spirit leads us to him, we won't bow down to him. At the time that I came to faith, I recall one of the topics I struggled with was pride. Pride. Essentially, I understood uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ to be saying that I am not the ruler of my life, that Jesus is. 
I, I understood that intellectually to be the gospel that Christianity was proclaiming, and yet I was sitting on pride that was the, the, uh, the, 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 the thing that was blocking me, that was keeping me from trusting in Jesus Christ. This was uh, very difficult for me. Uh, you see, as an adult's uh, only child of an emotionally unhinged mother and an alcoholic father from a working class or sort of lower middle class family, as one who in all of that context achieved tremendous academic and career success, up to that point, I was self-reliant. I was totally self-reliant, saving myself. Everything depended on my strength to survive. I was the king of my own life as I saw it. And I was, and I was proud of it. You know, I was proud of what I had achieved up to that point. But I had just read uh, a chapter in C.S. Lewis's uh, Mere Christianity called, uh, the chapter is called The Great Sin. And it's a chapter about pride. And uh, this was the thing, this chapter, this seven or eight page chapter rocked my world for three months. Here, let me just read to you the, the introduction uh, from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity chapter, The Great Sin. I now come to that point of Christian morals where they differ most sharply from all other morals. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I've heard people admit that they are bad-tempered, or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink, or even that they are cowards. I do not think I've ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who is not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in our own selves. At the more, and the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking about is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. It was interesting to find in a book, this, this copy of Mere Christianity that I read years ago, and to find my underlinings and uh, marginal notes. As I go on in the rest of this chapter about pride, here are some of the lines that, two lines that I underlined. The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. Isn't that true? Pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. As I said, I struggled with this for about three months before the Holy Spirit finally kicked me off the throne of my life so that I might find Jesus Christ to be the true king, the king not only of the Jews, but the king of my life also. Well, let's talk about you for a minute. Let's talk about you for a minute. I wonder if you're less like the, uh, the magi in this story and more like Herod and the religious leaders in this passage than you think. Maybe you even identify as a Christian, but as Horton showed us, not even that gets you off the hook. It's one thing to be identifying as Christian, it's another thing to see Christ as the true king of our lives. And chances are there is still a great deal of residual pride in your life, no matter who you are. 
I've struggled with this recently in my parenting. You know, I, I came to faith. I did a great deal of spiritual wrestling with the pride in my life to be humbled. I even went through therapy to heal me of my upbringing. But none of that prepared me to be the father of three children. None of that prepared me for what was to come to be the father of three children. It's a daily, hourly, minute-by-minute demonstration of the residual pride that still remains in my life. I'm the king of my house, dang it. And uh, I just want some peace. I even have some building projects that I'm working on. But a baby has come recently to disrupt my control of the situation. There are areas in your life that are like this too. What are they? Even if you've put your trust in Jesus, there are unevangelized places in your heart. And if you don't trust Jesus, the thing preventing you is probably, as C.S. Lewis said, is probably pride. You're the king or queen of your life. And I'm asking you to abdicate the throne. And that sounds easier said than done. Uh, I'm asking you to abdicate the throne for the love of God uh, and to do so uh, before that uh, king comes once again. Let me read to you the final, just as a final thought, the the final paragraph of that same chapter on the great sin from C.S. Lewis. If anyone uh, would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud, and a biggish step, too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.